Welcome to episode six of Rocky Mountain Surgery. This is Jason. And this is Allie. So we are both back for some Thanksgiving travel. We have a great episode for you guys today. Later in the episode, we'll be discussing with several of our VA faculties about the residency experience at that hospital. First though, Allie, let's do a recap of our last week. Do anything fun over the holidays? Yeah, so I went home uh, for the first time since I became a resident and visited my family for Thanksgiving. I saw my parents and my little brother. My little sister is actually a nurse, and she was working in Virginia, so she wasn't able to make it, but made me think about us in our former clinical lives and everybody else who works during the holidays, and had a lot of good time and ate a lot of good food. We had an oyster roast, uh, which is something that's pretty typical of the North Carolina coast where my parents live. What about you, Jason? An oyster roast? I've never heard of that. I'll have to look that up later. We should do one, although I'm not sure where the oysters would come from here. <laughs> it's not. It's real oysters, you guys, not Rocky Mountain oysters, yeah. which are something totally different. Very different. So I also went home, back to Dallas to visit my family. Typical for Dallas and Thanksgiving, lots of sports activities. So I went to both to a Stars game, which is a local hockey team, and the Cowboys game. I don't need to explain who that is. Boo. The most memorable experience, though, from Thanksgiving was, so my sister is a high school science teacher, and she teaches anatomy. And so my girlfriend, who's a pharmacist, and I went to talk to the students about careers in the health sciences. And I started telling them about the career path to surgery. Hmm. And, you know, I went through how it's four years in medical school, then it's five to seven years of surgical residency training, and you're learning and studying through all that time. How many people did you still have hooked by the end of well, all of that? <laughs> well, that's what I'm getting to. <laughs> so I'm saying, don't worry, guys, it sounds like a lot of schooling, but it's actually a lot of fun because you're reading what you want to learn and topics that are interesting to you. And clearly, I was presenting that as a perk. However, it was not taken that way. <laughs> uh, so maybe I'm not the greatest ambassador to uh, people be going into the health sciences career. But yeah, so that was an interesting experience and a fun break overall. We hope you guys all had a fun Thanksgiving week as well. Okay, so this week we have a question from Sarah who's answering a little bit anonymously. And P.S., you guys, we want to hear from you. Remember to send us your questions to rmspodcast at outlook.com. So Sarah writes in and she says, I have a lot of friends who are current MS4s interviewing for residency, and they have found, like we talked about on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, that a lot of places have interview dates on the same days that overlap, which make you kind of choose where you want to go. And she writes in asking, how do I graciously respond to places when I want to cancel an interview? So what are your thoughts on that, Jason? Well, I don't think you need to overthink it too much. The first thing I would say is do it as timely as possible because the programs will likely find someone else to come in and interview. Uh, so you want, as soon as you've realized that you're no longer able to make that interview, uh, I would go ahead and send, usually there's a contact person provided when they give you the invite to let them know that you will no longer be making them. Of course, be gracious and explain that I greatly appreciate the offer to come interview. A brief explanation as to why is okay, or you could simply just be vague and say, you know, unfortunately, I will not be able to make it. I would say that. I would be okay. vague. I Probably would say, true. dear Program X, thank you very much for the invitation to interview at your program. I think that this is an excellent surgery program, unfortunately, or whatever type of program you're going into. But unfortunately, I will not be able to make the interview, and I would like to give up my seat to someone else, to another applicant. Mm-hmm. It's also, it, 
it's also okay to ask if there is another date available mm-hmm. uh, if you do truly want to interview at that program. Sometimes they're not able to accommodate you, but oftentimes they are. Yeah. The other point I would add to this, and this probably isn't quite what she was asking about, but from time to time, things come up where you're stuck in a airport because of a snowstorm and you're not able to make the interview. Same thing, I would be in contact with that program either by, probably by phone if it's becoming a last minute situation. Mm-hmm. But it's good to keep them in the loop. And again, people are very understanding that this happens, especially with interview season typically occurring in the middle of winter. Yeah. Uh, but that's a good question. Again, guys, please send us any questions you have. Uh, next week, we'll be talking about experiences at a large trauma center or a basically safety net hospital. So if you have any questions about that kind of work, please remember to email us at rmspodcast at outlook.com. All right. So the main topic for today is the VA experience as a surgical resident. Allie, does anything stand out to you when it comes to your experience at the VA? Or just generally speaking, what has your experience been like over there? So where I went to medical school, we actually did not rotate at a VA. That VA was dominated by Duke's medical school and Duke's residencies. So I had zero VA experience before becoming a resident. Uh, So I don't know. I didn't have any positive or negative experiences to base um, what I thought being a resident at the VA would be like. And I think that there are positives and negatives to rotating at the VA. You take care of patients who are truly needing and deserving of your services. I think that the volumes are generally high. I think that the cases are generally a lot of bread and butter kind of surgical care with elective hernia repairs and things like that. But there's also a good amount of oncologic care provided at the VA. And then also some emergencies. And you definitely see some unique pathology there as well. So I think that it can be very rewarding to work at the VA because I just love taking care of VA patients. Um, There's just something particular about that group of folks mostly men, but some women as well, um, all of whom have served our country in various ways and have some really great stories and are just really rewarding to take care of. Mm-hmm. Uh, as far as things that are tough about being at the VA, I would say that the computer system, CPRS, feels like you're kind of stuck in the early 90s and that sometimes it can be hard to get things done expediently at the VA. What do you think? Well, like you said, it's a very rewarding experience and it's actually a very valuable experience for the residents as well. One of the things that I think is great about working at the VA are the attendings that work at the VA. A lot of these people have worked within the VA system for most of their careers or all of their careers, but there are also who come to the VA Um, later in their careers. I can think of people in both of those camps at our VA. And I think that the person who wants to be a VA surgeon wants a broad-based practice and truly wants to fight for taking care of our veterans. Um, Because in my opinion, there is a certain amount of due diligence required by the physicians there to really push things ahead and get things done. And so those are the people that you want being in charge of the VA, basically. Another part that I really enjoy about working at the VA is you get a continuity of care that you don't necessarily get elsewhere for several reasons. So for one, those who utilize the VA system almost do so solely for their medical care. 
And because of the computer system, say what you will about it, if someone is seen at a VA across the country, you have ability to access their care. So when it comes to the continuity of care, you will see these patients repeatedly and you'll be able to follow up on their general medical care over years throughout your residency experience, essentially. Mm-hmm. So that's very rewarding. And I've had several instances where I've encountered patients on several occasions, frequently in, in different aspects of surgical subspecialty training. So you may see them once with CT surgery or vascular surgery. And then for a completely separate issue, they're presenting with the uh, general surgery team. And I really enjoy that aspect of the VA as well. Speaking specifically about the experience, so it really doesn't differ a whole lot from the other rotations that you'll do as a resident in that there's usually a chief, uh, either a four or five on service, who manages the team. There are frequently no PAs to assist you, so and the attendings provide a bit more autonomy typically at the VA when it comes to patient management. Mm-hmm. Um, so it very much becomes the, the chief's team. And then the other residents, either a four or three or a two or a one, contribute to that. And there's also cases, usually two or three days out of the week, and then clinic one or two days out of the week, mm-hmm. that it's pretty much everyone is involved with both the OR days and the clinic days. So it's a full team effort at the VA. There's less uh, hierarchical, at least at our program, less hierarchical distribution of duties. And I would say based on my experience and something that you said a little bit earlier about the continuity of care, there have been a lot of experiences that I have had at the VA where you see somebody in clinic for a specific complaint, whether that be something that requires a simple outpatient surgery or mm-hmm. something that's slightly more complex. And we actually see them in clinic and then operate on them at the VA and provide their post-op care within ro- one rotation. To add, specifically for our program, the rotation she'll be involved with at the VA. So we have a, a general surgery team at the VA. They'll handle the consults, general surgery consults in the hospital and the ED, and they also handle elective cases that you see initially in clinic. And then they have an inpatient service as well, and patients arrive at the hospital, just like any other general surgery service through a variety of means. We also have uh, oncologic surgeons at the VA who are part of the general surgery team, but we'll sign up oncologic cases as well. And that actual experience is growing, actually. And then there's also a vascular team that, as you can expect with this, our particular patient population is very busy. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they actually do both endovascular and open procedures. They probably do more open procedures now than at the larger tertiary care hospitals, although their endovascular case load is quite uh, significant as well. There's also cardiothoracic, and they do a variety of cases from a cardiothoracic perspective as well. One of the things that I would add about our specific CU surgery experience is that the two takes consult chief call one or two nights a week. And I think that that's pretty unique. You know, as a two, you're already the junior in-house on trauma call at both Denver Health or the university. But at the VA, you're the person who is responsible for all of the consults. Generally, the intern will see them first and then call you. And then you are responsible for being the person managing them. Obviously, you have an attending who is on call with you. Generally, you'll see them first and then talk with the attending about your proposed plan. And I think that that gives you a nice segue into truly being the consult resident, which you would be as a third year independently. Generally speaking, the autonomy, uh, and I would estimate that this is true for most VAs across the country, the autonomy is a bit higher than some of the other hospitals you work at which is a significant perk of uh, working at a VA hospital. Uh, But that's not to say that there aren't attendings and chiefs available to assist you throughout the process. True. All right, so why don't we listen in to our interviews now with the uh, VA faculty. 
So we have Dr. Teresa Jones and Dr. Edward Jones, or Eddie Jones, as we call them. They are a powerhouse VA surgical couple. They are two of our many faculty who work at the VA primarily. To start, could you guys tell us kind of your path towards surgery and then also towards being VA surgeons? Sure. This is uh, Eddie. I mean, went to medical school, was almost going to do family practice. Uh, Teresa told me to wait on my decision, wait until we completed our, yes. our surgery rotations, and then got on to surgery and uh, kind of knew that I wouldn't be doing anything else. And then we kind of went through the somewhat arduous process of couples matching into a surgery program. Of course, trained here, University of Colorado. Uh, we both went away for a year of fellowship. I um, focused on endoscopy, minimally invasive surgery, some ERCP and whatnot for a year, and uh, Teresa did critical care, getting critical care boarded. And then we got recruited to come back and work at the VA. And that's kind of the, the short story, I guess. What about you, Dr. T. Jones? I mean, pretty similar story. Went to medical school, and, and meeting Eddie, we were both pretty open-minded going into what, what we wanted to specialize in. And honestly, we tried not to do the same thing because we knew that would be a difficult path. But I think with surgery, you have to think that it's the only thing you want to do and that Mm -hmm. nothing else would really make you happy. So I think that kind of determined how we progressed in our careers. Not much to add except, you know, coming back to the VA, it was more of a decision on how we wanted to develop that career, whether it was private practice back in Montana where Eddie's from versus coming back to somewhere, you know, where we'd have a lot more mentorship and support along with a lot of other things. And ultimately, we chose that. And I think to our great benefit and hopefully to some of our patients. Definitely. So kind of thinking about that decision, it sounds like when you guys were leaving fellowship and contemplating job offers, one of the similarities that I see between practicing in Montana and practicing here at the VA is the diversity of practice that you would have where you're doing a wide range of surgeries and you have a wide range of conditions that you treat. Do you think that that's true? Is that something that you were looking for when you were contemplating those decisions? Versus being a subspecialty surgeon, per se, where you're primarily operating on the pancreas or liver. I mean, even both of the subspecialties that you guys have chosen, I would say, are broad-based subspecialties that lend itself to a broad-based clinical practice. Sure. I think initially one of the things that um, I really loved about surgery was the aspect of being able to do a little bit of everything. Um, I, I remember even loving uh, rotating on peds because they'll do thoracic, they'll do abdominal, they'll do me- much more Pete everything. Peds surgery. Yeah, peds <laughs> surgery than um, general surgeons today. And one of the things that really I was excited about possible private practice up in the middle of nowhere was that um, you would do everything, really not C-sections, but you are the backup for when mm-hmm. things go wrong. And so coming back to your initial question, there are some similarities. There is uh, less of a broad practice here. You'd, you would be, we would have been doing much more surgical oncology up there hmm. than we do here. Not a huge volume, as you would imagine, but that being said, we didn't want to be, at least I know I didn't want to be kind of shoehorned into just doing, uh, you know, laparoscopic hernia repairs. I did want to be able to maintain a broad practice just in case there is some point where we go somewhere else. You know, I think it's important to maintain those skills. And honestly, like, it's one of the funnest things about general surgery. You're presented with some kind of a problem, and uh, depending on where it is, you can address it one way or another. But I think as we've we've been trying to build surgical care for the veterans here, it's it's more specialized than we thought it would be. You know, Eddie has really focused on Nissen's. Like, he'll do two to three Nissen's amazingly a week. And I, and I found that 
as we have more sick patients and our, our staffing ability changes, I'm doing more critical care. And I think that's true for any job that you're going to have to tailor what your expectations to what the job requires. And, you know, we see, like, Eddie started a feeding tube clinic. Like, why would you ever start that? Unless there was such a huge need. And I think we've tailored our practice also to the needs of our patients, which is very different from what I think we would have had in a rural practice. Interesting. So I've not heard of a, a feeding tube clinic before. Uh, is that a, a newer technique to treating patients with? <laughs> maybe technique's not the best word. Is that a newer approach to, to those kind of hyponutrition problems or poor nutrition problems? The, the the feeding tube clinic is more of a... It's tube maintenance, really. Yeah. I mean Almost the, like something that you would see in a pediatric population, yeah, maybe. Yeah, that's, what, that's where you typically hear it. Yeah. yeah, so we have more more people than we know are getting feeding tubes for one reason or another. And the problem is is that they seem to kind of happen uh, in these one-off situations. You go and see your general surgeon, they put in a tube, and you don't see him again. Hmm. You go see your, your GI doctor or interventional radiology. And what we've found here now that we are fortunately full-time, we're seeing these patients come back, seeing them again and again, is that no one really teaches them how to take care of the tube. And part of the problem is you're not in a good state of mind when you're getting a tube. These are critically ill patients or they're undergoing chemo radiation. they got a lot, thing, a lot of things going. And now it's six months after they've had the tube and it's leaking a little bit or the, the site isn't looking good. And so you know, what we essentially decided is look like, you know, someone needs to take care of this patient population. I did a lot of these during my fellowship. We'll just take it over. And I think um, we've had a lot better outcomes now that there's a single service, a single area for all of these problem patients to go to. Um, And it's provided a lot more consistent care, I think. Now, Ali and I talked a bit about one of the benefits of working with the VA population is they use this, the VA medical system almost solely for their medical care. So there is some more of a single unit when it comes to the overall medical practice. So in other words, you know what the PCP is up to or can at least reference the notes pretty easily. Uh, but just speaking more broadly, what does working with the VA population mean to you guys? I think it means it's a, it's a population that has a lot of healthcare needs, but in general is probably the most grateful population anyone will ever work with. Like I, I told someone the other day, I would take 10 of my VA patients over a private practice patient because there's a, there's a lot of trust despite what you see in the media, a lot of trust in, in our care, and they are very willing to listen to our opinions and, and take them into you know consideration for their care, um, and they believe in the system despite what you what you see. It is a, getting a little harder, honestly, with choice, the whole choice option where they can go if they live within a certain distance, driving distance of a, a VA facility, they have the option of going locally. But that system has had so many problems that they're not even trusting that. So, you know, they come to us with expectations and hopefully we meet them. But it's a pa- like a population that we look forward to treating because, you know, we gain a lot of satisfaction from their appreciation. Yeah, and I think that, that brings up an interesting point. When we were considering jobs, um, we had rotated here at the VA as residents. And so we had an idea of how things ran. Yeah. But we didn't have an idea of kind of the complexity of the veteran population and kind of the expectations that would be set being a VA physician. I mean, the VA health system is the largest health system in the U.S. You know, at 9 million patients, it serves more than any insurance program or Kaiser or anything else. And so there are bound to be issues when you're trying to use a heavily bureaucratic approach to caring for all these patients. And so what has happened is that there have been a number of approaches to try and protect the patients, take good care of the patients. And what it has done 
is almost given us a higher standard to achieve than anywhere else is available. I mean, a great example of that is this idea of we have to be able to schedule a patient for surgery within 30 days. My mom recently had back surgery. She went in, she was hurting, she had to use a cane to walk around, and she's in her you know, early 50s. I mean, and they told her that it's three months as soon as like she can you know, possibly get scheduled. You know, whereas we were held to the standard, if we can't schedule them within 30 days, then we have to offer them something else. And so it's, it's just been something we never even considered to be held to this almost higher standard that no one else is held to. And then we also have to maintain absolute transparency. In fact, if, you know, one thing I just learned today, it was really funny, actually, is you can go and look up all of our salaries, any federal employee's salary. You can go look it up, like right now on the Internet. And we'll I be never. Googling you guys. Yeah, exactly. As soon as we'll you're leave, done, we'll leave that off the podcast. <laughs> but uh, it's just so interesting the transparency that we have. I'm not saying it's bad. I think it's good. Like I, I want to know my complication rate. Mm-hmm. I want to know my mortality rate. I want to get better at taking care of veterans. But is definitely not something that I thought about ahead of time or was prepared for. I guess coming in. You know, I think that some of the things that Jason and I talked about when we had our conversation in terms of working with the veteran population were things that you guys echoed, both in terms of kind of the do-it-yourself ingenuity that you were discussing with starting this G-Tube clinic here, where you see a need within the veteran population and within the VA system, you're able to kind of create something that fits that need, but also like what you were saying, Dr. Jones, about just how great it is to take care of this patient population and how grateful they are to you for their care, whether you're their intern or your, their senior surgeon. They are appreciative of everything that you do for them. Every morning when you come in and knock on their door at 5 a.m., they're still appreciative of the care. And so I think that that's been very valuable for us. Yeah. Now, having the VA experience isn't, or it is somewhat of a unique phenomenon to residency programs. Not every residency program has that. I would say most, but some don't. Like well, where I, I don't know. A lot of community school. programs don't work at a VA. Mainly academic centers will have access to a VA. Now, I had that in medical school. And residency, but yeah. there's another example: is there will be some even academic centers where you don't have the the option to train at a VA, or at least have that as part of your training. What do you feel like are the the advantages as a resident of having part of your training occurring in a VA hospital? Well, I think it's interesting you bring up that point. Um, it actually, when you combine medical students and residents, seventy percent of all trainees will have rotated through a VA, wow. and so the VA is actually a central part of you know, medical training in the U.S. Um, between all of that and, and being such a central part, you know, it is something that we really sought. You know, I really desire to do teaching while you're here, you know, and and there are many reasons for it. You know, I don't know specifically, Teresa, you have some specific ideas or thoughts on teaching. You know, I think, I think we're afforded because of, you know, certain limitations that we have, we're afforded extra time to teach. You know, you know, you have to take advantage of you have to make what lemonade out of lemons. So we have extra time to teach our residents. We have a lot of mentorship, but then we also have a little bit more freedom um, for patient for our residents to make decisions, our med students to take ownership of patients and try to put in labs, put in orders. And I think that freedom comes with the responsibility of our part to maintain oversight, but also trust our residents and give them that ability to learn. Because I don't think it's possible to learn without a little bit of freedom. Mm-hmm. I think we are afforded that here with time with our staffing and just with the patients who are willing to accept care from trainees too. I really think that, you know, the freedom or autonomy is really key to kind of taking that next step. Like, you know, you can, 
make all sorts of decisions, but not feel like they're your own. You're just enacting someone else's plan. But once those decisions start to become your own, you know, when you walk into that patient's room and the patient's like, all right, you know, Dr. Samuels, what do you want to do today? And you're making that decision and that plan, which I think we are afforded here more than a lot of other places, um, all of a sudden it becomes more real. And now it is your decision. You're making that one step closer to, you know, being a board certified doctor. And we had actually, Allie and I had talked about that when we were discussing our experience at the VA, that there is a level of autonomy that's afforded to you because of the nature of the system uh, that you're not afforded uh, elsewhere or other part areas where we train. For example, starting to take call in your second year. So it's something that starts generally in the second year, but usually you're the junior resident in house helping with consults. Um, and here you are the senior resident on call, but with significant attending backup. And I think that that gives you, it's like the perfect balance of autonomy, but knowing that you're supported in your decisions should you need help. Because sometimes, especially in the beginning of your second year, you're going to need some help in terms of diagnostic dilemmas. And many of the things that I saw here when I was on call as a second year resident were not 100% clear, as you may see in some of the VA population patients. Now, Dr. Jones, you did advanced laparoscopic training and MIS training as part of your fellowship. How do you teach some of those skills in the, in the operating room to junior residents or even senior residents, some of these more advanced laparoscopic skills? I have to rely on our residents already having a understanding of basic laparoscopy. Uh, laparoscopy. And that uh, is something we have really focused on as a, as a training program here where we really focus, our interns are getting in there, they're practicing open surgery, we want to make sure they're getting at least 25 cases in their rotation here over a month um, and they're practicing time. When our, when our second years come back, now their focus is laparoscopy. They're going to get FLS tested and hopefully certified while they're here. And so we want them to be in on all the basic cases. And then just as um, Teresa was saying, you know, I have been fortunate to kind of focus on some of these more advanced laparoscopic cases for gut surgery for the most part. And that allows direct observation by our, our twos and our threes um, if they're available. But also I get a lot of direct input from the chiefs. And one of the most important things with the chiefs is because of the design of our system, some of the time limitations, um, we're able to, you know, really allow kind of our chiefs or whoever's operating time to time to practice. Um, we don't we don't have to be done with that Nissen in 45 minutes. We can take an hour and a half, still do everything very safe for the patient, give them an excellent procedure, but also give enough time for, you know, our our, um, our chiefs and even sometimes our twos to really practice and hone their skills. And so I think, you know, to kind of really summarize what we're talking about is this, this idea is we afford time to really establish the basic skills and to develop some of the advanced skills in our little training lab here. And then uh, we're able to really kind of capitalize on those um, by focusing on these advanced laparoscopic cases and really giving time with a patient to practice. One of the things that Jason and I talked about, just to give you guys feedback, one of the things that we thought was great about the VA experience is how busy we are in clinic and how many of our clinic patients, like you were saying, how we have to book people within 30 days or give them a choice to go elsewhere, how many people we basically see from the clinic to the operating room to take care, taking care of them post-op and discharging them and potentially even in the same month seeing them in post-op clinic as well. So I think that that was something mm -hmm. that was a big plus for us. Which is surprisingly uncommon, like you mentioned uh, in our other rotations, because mostly 
our rotations up until chief year are about four weeks long. And so, as you can imagine, most people aren't going to get their surgeries in that time if you see them in clinic. Whereas at the VA, I remember signing people up, and within the next week, we were in the operating room with that patient, which really completely changes the dynamic as a resident with those patients because they, they're all your patient to a degree, but it completely changes that experience when you see them all the way through. And then even because patients use this system uh, uniquely almost, uh, you will see those patients come through the hospital again later on, either through your general surgery service, or they may just be in the halls because they're on a medicine service uh, or just visiting one of their primary care physicians. That happens pretty frequently here as well. I think there are a lot of great things about rotating here and being a provider at the VA, but I, I would acknowledge that there are challenges. Are there any challenges that you guys see persistently within your practice that you are working to change or something that you think of on a daily basis? I think it's the general inertia. That's the right word. You know, like people willing to accept what is what has been the standard for so long. And I think Dr. Robinson has done such an excellent job changing our surgical culture, just like you guys mentioned about timing, timing to from seeing the patient to the surgery to after. You know, we... We want to provide care that's efficient, you know, timely, and good quality. And just to do that, we face so many barriers, you know, with with our perioperative issues, environmental issues, and things that people have accepted that are okay that you just can't be okay. And I think someone told me here that once you stop fighting, it's time to go because because hmm. you've you've done enough, you've you've had enough. And I think once we reach that, I hope we never do because there's always going to be some kind of government block or some like not ridiculous but you know seemingly slightly unreasonable cause for some of our delays or problems and we just can't settle for that for our patients you know one of the things i remember um being a uh, being a trainee and people complaining about not being able to hire or fire people being a big deal and i'm like i don't know what you're talking about you know it seems fine um and then you know coming here working full-time uh it's that you know, you see it in the news all the time. It's hard to hire and fire people. Well, what impact does that has have? That means that, you know, and I'm, you're kind of treading like this very kind of politically charged discussion that's, that's happening nationally. But, you know, day to day, you can see people who aren't achieving the standard that you would expect, yet have no fear of repercussions because they may have been here many, many years or, you know, the the chance of a performance eval being significantly negative to result in, in a reprimand is low. Um, and so that, that can be very frustrating because, you know, you're exactly right. People have been doing it the same way for many, many years, and you come in with all these new and exciting ideas. Some of them may be good, some of them may not. But there is this inertia where we've been doing it this way for so long. It works, maybe a little slow, maybe a little annoying, but it works. And you're like, well, I want to try it this new way. And then you essentially get this chorus of no's. Um, but I think that is that is part of why we're so excited to continue to get kind of new, excited people in and why, you know, we've been so fortunate to partner with Dr. Tom Robinson, the, the chief of surgery here, who's kind of really reinvigorated the general surgery department with all these excited new people. Um, and we're able to kind of push things forward. And I think... Um, that is actually uh, a very much understated part of looking for your first job. Part of the reason that I think Teresa and I both love it here is that the people we work with, you know, our colleagues, you know, we sit in the same office. We've got four people, four docs in the same office. 
Uh, you know, we can bounce it's any a idea. It's big office for you guys. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's big. Um, but we can bounce ideas off each other. And it's just it's just fun. You know, like I just I dread the idea now of being, you know, isolated in my own little office, making decisions all by myself. I really like this collegial atmosphere. Um, and it just it just makes it fun to come into work. Now, we told you guys we would discuss this before the end of the day, but it's not terribly frequent, although becoming more common that you have a surgical couple. And it's even probably less common that that couple works together essentially on the same team. So what have been some of the challenges you have faced? Or certainly, I'm sure there are several advantages of that. What's your experience been like in general regarding uh, working together? You know, I think hmm, that's a good question. It's harder than you would think, and but it's a lot easier, too. I, that's a stupid answer. But, you know, I, I feel so fortunate that I'm constantly surrounded by somebody who supports me no matter how ridiculous I am, but also that I make my decisions because of, you know, I make some decisions because Dr. Moore tells me stuff, but, like, I really have to consider what Eddie is doing and thinking. And when you're in this couple with that has another person who's ambitious and has all these career goals, you really have to plan your lives together in a way that, you know, is kind of alters your career almost. Actually, it does. It alters your career and makes you make your decisions based on his his or her goals for their life and, and for their, their both professional and personal goals, I think. Yeah, I would agree. There, there are pluses and minuses. I mean, one of the biggest challenges, especially early on, I think was, you know, you're you're a young married couple and um, things are always up and down in relationships and they can get really low sometimes. And no matter what it's like at home, we really tried to keep our professional kind of lives a little separate. Um, we love being around each other. I'm not going to say we, we don't hold hands in the hallway every now and again. Like, you know, I won't say that. But at the same time, and it, it can be very challenging, but especially working so closely, you can be very, very upset for something at home, you know, whatever happened. It, it doesn't really matter. But you can't let that affect how you take care of patients. You're still a doctor. You still need to take care of patients. And I would have to say that's one of the most challenging things that we still continue to work on is really trying to keep those separate even though they are inevitably a little bit linked. On the other hand, like, it is it is just so nice. Like, you know, I would I would rather spend my time with Teresa all the time, you know? I just love being next to her. And so the ability to just kind of work in the same office just, you know, makes my day awesome every day. And so, like, there are, there are totally, like, the benefits way outweigh the negatives. It is challenging at times, but, like, for the most part, it is it's an amazing thing to be able to do. What about reaching this point in your guys' career? What what advice would you have for applicants to residency when it comes to uh, couples matching or since you guys have gone through that process? I guess it's it's even more than couples matching, though, mm -hmm. because it's couples matching and then it's kind of cultivating a career, whether you guys are at the same institution. Other people may do this where they live in the same town and they're surgeons in different settings. But how how did that kind of all play out or how did you make it start, I guess? Now, when we were when we were applying to residency, it was should we say we're like Eddie said, should we say we're a couple or not? And ultimately, we decided to say we are a couple. We were engaged at the time, like we we were pro we're, we're we come as a pair. And I think that was a big risk for Dr. Naylor to take on us, like a very big risk. But I I we could not have found a more supportive program. You know, we got I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, we got all of our vacations together. Like we everyone was very conscious of, and very respectful of our relationship. 
And I think that's so important to find people who support your family. Because if you, they don't support your family, you can't make it. Like, I think our program supports us a lot. Sorry, that was my big point. That's <laughs> all right. Well, I mean, I think to kind of to continue with that idea, when we were looking at programs, we were worried that small programs, um, really six or less, it would be very risky to take us in this idea of getting time off together. Because obviously, we want to spend our holidays, our vacations together. Um, and if you don't have very many residents, it's going to be very hard to do that without really harming your other residents. And you don't want to harm your colleagues. You don't want to make their lives miserable. You guys are we're all a team together, you know, we all kind of suffer together and we all celebrate together. Mm -hmm. And so we were very hesitant in applying uh, to some of the smaller programs. So we really focused on big programs and then big cities that had dual programs in case we wanted to, to be at separate institutions. But the feel that we got just, you know, and this is why I think more so than, than, numbers and number of publications the faculty have it was really the feel we got when we got here we felt welcomed we were like yeah i mean you know i remember thinking consciously yeah dr naylor could be my dad like it kind of sounds very <laughs> weird, similar weird. <laughs> very weird statement but you know and it was like we just feel like we fit in and so it made residency while it can be very hard it can be very painful you can relate to all these guys and you can all kind of like i said suffering together just makes it so much easier and so that also bled into this idea that they totally supported us as a couple. And, and I, think, they, I think that's what we looked at at our job, too. Like, coming back, you know, everyone knew us. Everyone knew our family. We had a baby. We had another baby on the way. So we found a job that supported our family. So it's not only a patient population we loved and a job that we thought we could make a difference. It was, you know, they know what our priorities are. We know what their priorities are. And that's, so, that's, that's what we look for both in a residency, I think, and a, and a job. Now, Dr. E. Jones, one thing that we haven't talked about yet is that you yourself are actually involved in the military. Can you tell us a little bit about when you decided to enlist? Was it while you were a resident or finishing residency and how that kind of played into your surgical training and your decision to come back and treat veterans at the VA? Sure. So I'm a, um, I'm a, it's called a 61J or Juliet. It's a, it's a general surgeon or a trauma surgeon, as the Army thinks of it, and the Army Reserves. I have always wanted to be in the military since I was very young. And I was just trying to figure out when I could get into the military when I had the most control. Because when you sign on the dotted line, they're ultimately going to make you do things that you don't really want to do, but is for the, the needs of the Army. And that's just part of being in that organization. And so I finally decided, you know, at the end of fellowship, that that would be the best time. Now I'm, I am almost a board certified doctor. They're automatically going to put me, you know, higher up in the officer ranks just based upon all the years of education I have. And I'll be, you know, I'll be a, hopefully an important part of a, of a, some kind of Army Reserve unit. Um, it was a very difficult decision. Teresa and I argued about it a lot because in this day and age, um, with all the stuff going on, especially in the Middle East, ultimately what they want to do with the general surgeon, which is essentially a trauma surgeon, that's mm -hmm. what they think of us, you're going to get deployed because you need to go over there and take care of our soldiers. And right now, and each branch is a little bit different, but right now the deployments or the length of time I'm away from my family is approximately three to four months, 90 to 120 days. And they set a maximum of 110 days um, kind of out of country in a sense. That kind of came out of Desert Storm time when they called up a bunch of doctors and told them you'll be gone in a, you know, 
be back in a few months. And it was nine months, 12 months later, and all these doctors lost their practices, right? And so they're like, we got to figure out a way to maintain people. So they set these kind of strict guidelines in order to be able to maintain a reserve population because the Army reserves and the reserves in general supply about 70% of all the medical personnel in our military. Wow. And it's all these kind of doctors and nurses and everyone rotating in and out. So anyway, decided that fellowship was the best time to join up. And I've been kind of drilling with the team since then. And it's, you know, honestly, it's been hard because being away from family um, is really hard. At the same time, it is it is a very rewarding experience. Uh, I can't say that it really impacted my desire to be at the VA or not. I mean, you definitely, and that's probably because I was just joining when I was coming here. In retrospect now, after being with the unit for a few years, uh, meeting all these guys, I think it totally makes me so much happier in this job too because being in the Army, you're definitely part of a team. You're part of a unit, a group of guys, that, that guys and girls, that um, at certain times you're like, I would do anything for this group. And so to come back and now to take care of them uh, is is awesome. And then the other thing is, uh, for anyone who is in the military and is considering a VA job, the VA is one of the few places where you actually get military leave on top of your, your annual leave, your vacation time. So most places, if you have to go and do drill, you got to take a week off or whatever it may be, um, you're going to have to use up your vacation time and your sick leave. But the VA has designated um, two or three weeks of military leave that is separate from all that. And so they're very accepting of uh, reservists, especially. Well, we thank you both tremendously for both being on the podcast and for all of the teaching and knowledge you've bestowed upon us, both inside and outside of the operating room. Uh, Regarding some of the other things that we've talked on during this podcast in terms of like working with your spouse, Number one, I commend both of you. I can't even imagine my husband and I working together in any situation. Well, in many situations, but not at work. So it is amazing. And just watching you guys, like I have been in the operating room with both of you in different cases where you have consulted your spouse as a surgical partner. What do you think about this? And that's amazing. Like that's really quite a unique and awesome experience. And that kind of collaborative teamwork we see a lot here. So we thank you guys for being on the podcast and for everything you do. Thanks for inviting us. Thank you. Thank you so much. So we have two more of our excellent VA faculty here, our VA surgeons. We have Dr. John Moore and we have Dr. Carlton Barnett. Both of you have had an interesting path to the VA. Dr. Moore, why don't you go first? Do you mind telling us first your path to surgery in general, and then also how you ended up at the Denver VA Hospital? Uh, thank you, Jason. Very briefly, uh, I uh, was a general surgeon in private practice uh, for approximately 20 years, and then I became a program director at a private hospital in the Denver area, St. Joseph Hospital, for about nine years. Uh, and my son had been in the military. I'd never been in the military I knew Tom Robinson, who's the chief of surgery here, and he called me and asked me if I would like to come to work at the VA, and I said yes, so uh, here I am. I've enjoyed it immensely. Uh, I enjoy the people I work with in particular. Uh, the camaraderie and the esprit de corps that exists here is uh, absolutely remarkable, and our ability to work with this population as well as with the uh, residents is a 
just a great environment. Uh, I've also taken on a new job here. I'm the uh, overseer of the educational process with the affiliate, meaning the University of Colorado, and I'm just getting started, and that's uh, also got a lot of uh, kind of fun stuff associated with it. So overall, everything is going quite well. I'll turn it over to Dr. Barnett. Thanks, Jason and Allison. I uh, went to medical school here, so was actually familiar with this VA, um, and after uh, doing a fellowship, uh, I have worked uh, off and on at the VA hospital for the last 17 years, uh, including uh, 32 hours a week when I was in Dallas, as well as uh, part-time uh, when I was in Charleston, South Carolina. I was really interested, I think, at this point in my career in uh, pursuing a more elective practice in surgical oncology and having some time for research. And so uh, Tom Robinson approached me wanting a full-time surgical oncologist to get programs up and uh, moving here. And so for the last year and a half, that's uh, what I've been doing over here full-time. Now, Dr. Moore, as you mentioned, your path is a bit different in that you were in private practice for several years, actually several decades before coming to the VA. How does being in the private practice world compare to the academic world? And you were uh, admittedly in somewhat of a hybrid position where it was a, a training hospital, but it was still a private practice. How do those? How does the overall experience of those different settings compare? Well, I think the main thing, uh, Jason, is that there's probably not the economic pressures in terms of grinding out the uh, volume of work that's necessary. Uh, certainly in the private practice model, and 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 I don't want to give the impression that people were just chasing money all the time because we weren't. Um, but we certainly were cognizant of it, and we clearly had an office to support. And there were a lot of pressures uh, in uh, terms of reimbursement because reimbursement over time uh, tends to erode. Uh, it's rare for you to see an increase in any particular procedure for reimbursement, and your costs are continually going up in terms of your expenses associated with your employees as well as your office insurance, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, I think the, the primary difference is, is, is probably that economic aspect. But I'll also say at the same time, as I look at academic medical centers, and I do think this is what the VA really tends to offer in terms of a, a training program, is that the academic medical centers are experiencing many of those pressures because the attendings are under the same kinds of, of requirements now in terms of their own compensation. In other words, it's not a fixed number any longer. It is dependent upon volume. And we don't have those pressures. Granted, we have the same pressures to assure that we are uh, being efficient and providing efficient care, meaning getting work done. But we're not under that kind of, of, uh, of a threshold or, or cover, if you will. So I'm just going to translate what you just said real quick for some of our listeners who are going to be medical students who aren't as privy to how the medical system works in the United States. But what, what that means is, so even in the academic setting now, volume is very important. Work volume is very important. I won't go into the intricacies of that. But Whereas at, at those hospitals, there is a certain expectation to complete a number of cases per day. At the VA, because of a, a very different system, that time constraint is not there. And we've been beating around this bush uh, when we talked to doc the, the Dr. Joneses. The Dr. Joneses. I think that's how you say that. I think it's the Dr. Jones. Dr. Jones? Yeah, that baby. What we're beating around the bush here is saying that because there is uh, fewer of those constraints or pressures, that means more time in the operating room for a junior surgeon or even a, a more senior level resident to struggle in the more difficult cases. 
without having to worry about the OR charge nurse bursting and saying, when are we going to get this case done? You get, you've got two more cases. That's what that ultimately boils down to. That's one of the major benefits of a VA hospital. And I, and I would say that's absolutely correct. And the VA is clearly set up, too, because coming from the – as a program director, I think one of the things to recognize, too, for residents is the need for uh, progressive responsibility and autonomy, uh, which is huge in terms of their ultimate uh, development as a independent surgeon in this particular case. And so uh, the VA is particularly attuned to allow for that progression. Now, Dr. Barnett, you've worked in several different academic centers at this point in your career. How does teaching at the VA differ compared to some of the other centers you've worked at, including Denver Health, which we'll be having an episode very soon here uh, to discuss as well? I think the VA is a really a wealth of material for certain fields. So, you know, we have a large demographic uh, and a large catchment area of patients that have cancer. Uh, I like the more elective aspect of that. Uh, I think there's more time. Uh, to teach. I think that you don't have nurses busting in to, to do cases. Uh, you don't have pressures of, uh, you know, being on call for a trauma while you're trying to do, uh, you know, a complex elective case. So, you know, I think it's a more relaxed environment. Uh, the clinic is a little bit slower than, you know, 50 patients that are all mixed. And so it's nice to be able to take time and kind of look at films and, and work through uh, different options with the residents. And so I think in terms of teaching, I've really enjoyed uh, you know, kind of less encumbrances from other problems that you might run into, or certainly I ran into, uh, you know, when you had to cover a lot of things at a safety net hospital. And that was the case, you know, both at Denver Health and also, you know, when I worked at Parkland, there's just a lot of uh, other things that can drag, uh, you know, I, I think away from the time. So, yeah, I think you have to talk to the chief residents, but the volume of, you know, quote, big cases is actually higher here, you know, than many places in the system. And I think the ability to work through them in a thoughtful manner is better, really, in my opinion, than some other places. Dr. Barnett, speaking as a surgical oncologist, from your standpoint, how do you feel like multidisciplinary care is different at the VA compared to like a major academic medical center? Or do you think it's very similar? Yeah, I think it's really similar. I mean, we have the fortune of having a really good uh, tumor board here. You know, the radiation oncologist uh, come on site to RVA here, and I think that'll get better, obviously, when we're over on the same campus, the university hospital. But, uh, you know, I think that the people are well-trained. All the medical oncologists, you know, just like me, have appointments at the university hospital. And so, yeah, I, I think the VA cooperative trials uh, put people in a little bit different mindset in terms of, you know, enrolling patients in trials, thinking about up-to-date therapy, and the fact that, you know, the faculty really go back and forth, uh, you know, I think make it an outstanding Tumor board. I, I know, you know, at some safety net hospitals, you're, you know, hoping to have people come by telehealth or things like that, and they don't always show up, and it's hard to look at films, and so there's a lot of uh, things that are difficult. And so, you know, having, you know, particularly radiation oncology faculty directly there, pathology directly there, I mean, it's really, a, I think, a better setup here than in some other places in town. I, I have participated in some of the tumor boards at the university, which are also you know, very good. But I wouldn't think that, you know, in my opinion, they're very much different um, than, than the ones over there. Well, thank you again for taking the time to speak with us. This was very informative. So guys, thanks for listening in. That wraps up another episode of Rocky Mountain Surgery. 
Next week, we will be interviewing our trauma faculty at Denver Health and discuss the county hospital experience, which Jason and I have both said over and over again is incredibly valuable. Uh, Denver Health is an amazing trauma hospital, and I anticipate that being a fascinating show. We hope that you will listen in with us. So if you guys, as we mentioned before, have any questions, uh, you can email us at rmspodcast at outlook.com. We love hearing from you guys and are happy to answer your questions on air or even off air if you prefer. Uh, You can also now follow us on Twitter at rmspod and feel free to interact with us on that uh, means as well. You know what, Jason? I want to bribe some people out in the audience. I'm just saying that if you guys send us a question to rmspodcast at outlook.com, We're going to send you, and I was interviewed by Rocky Mountain Surgery Giant Button, to whatever address you send us. So we're listening for your questions. And I'll tweet out a picture of those pins, although they've been seen a few times by now on Twitter. They're really cool, you guys. All right. Well, thanks for listening. All right. Thanks, guys.